0: Hey, everybody. Before we start the show, I want to let you in on something really exciting. We are taking the podcast on the road. We'll be in Boulder, Colorado on September 20th and Washington, D.C. on November 8th. We'll be taping a podcast live on stage so you can see how all this magic happens. Get a ticket at nprpresents.org.
1: Hey, everyone. This is Ben Rothman in Southwick, England, where I just became the first American to ever win the world championships of croquet. This podcast was recorded at... You it's uh,
0: 1.07 p.m. on Thursday, August 15th. Things may have
1: changed by the time you hear this.
0: Like the world of croquet, which has been shook. Way to go. Wow.
2: Way to go, buddy.
0: Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover politics. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben. I also cover politics.
2: I'm Aisha Roscoe. I cover the White House.
0: And
1: I'm Ron Elbing, editor-correspondent.
0: And we're going to start with some bad news for Aisha, and we will explain why. (laughs) Beto O'Rourke is committed to his presidential campaign. He relaunched it today in a way after taking some time away from the trail to be in El Paso as his community tries to heal from a mass shooting that was seemingly targeted at Latinos.
1: There have even been some who've suggested that I stay in Texas and run for Senate. But that would not be good enough for this community. That would not be good enough for El Paso. That would not be good enough for this country. We must take the fight directly to the source of this problem. That person who has caused this pain and placed this country in this moment of peril and that is Donald Trump.
0: And Aisha, we should explain that this is not a personal problem no, with you. No, I have do not have
2: any problem with Beto.
0: Beto, all. but Beto. the problem lies
2: Tell us more. <laughs> o, O'Rourke? O'Rourke. I did good. You O'Rourke. did. That's the best. O'Rourke. Perfect. O'Rourke. Yeah. <laughs> you should have stopped
3: at the first one. Okay, now say rural juror for us. Aisha can't say O'Rourke. Rural, um,
0: no. What's the possessive of
1: Buddha uh, <laughs> judge?
3: We'll get there.
0: <laughs> okay, Some so. We'll get there. So, Aisha, yeah. I think. I, I think the editors have decided you can just say "better" if you feel better that way I, in this segment. I feel segment. better. Better. <laughs> I feel better
1: that way. I feel
0: better. So oh, O'Rourke <laughs> did. Um, he really stepped in, and he was he was in his community in a very serious time in his community. But even though he did not campaign, he skipped the Iowa State Fair and a lot of other campaign events. He really did shape the presidential race the last few weeks by talking about what we heard just there, and that he really led the charge in saying that. President Trump is stirring up hatred with his rhetoric and bears some sort of responsibility for the climate right now in this country of, of an upsurge in white nationalism. He was the most extreme in making that point. Other Democrats have made varied versions of that point. But it became something that lots of candidates were talking about and asked about this week.
3: He has definitely been sort of at the forefront of this. It's definitely something people have stopped and taken notice of. But also the shootings in El Paso and Dayton have really shaped this race in a very particular way. I don't like gun control hasn't taken over the race. But, for example, in Iowa, a gun control forum was very quickly organized. Many of the candidates showed up at it and even at events that were not that forum. In many of their stump speeches, gun control made an appearance that it otherwise would not. This is a thing that I don't think the candidates are going to let
0: go of anytime soon. O'Rourke talked about that pressure to drop out and run for Senate. That's real pressure. I mean, wh- wh- why is that?
1: The Democrats, if they're going to have any chance of taking back the Senate in 2020, need to get some of these presidential candidates out of the presidential race and into the Senate races in their home states. Texas would be one of them. We're going to talk about uh, Hickenlooper in a moment in Colorado. Uh, that would also apply to Steve Bullock in Montana. These are guys who would have a shot, at least, of winning a Senate seat in their home state. If you look at the numbers with uh, with 22 Republican seats on the ballot, but you got to have somebody to beat those people. The Democrats have only got maybe six or seven shots, and they're only going to have those six or seven shots at some of those 22 incumbents if they can get their best candidates.
0: And the thing is, uh, O'Rourke really has, the, the, the best way to frame it for me is that he raised more money in his first day in the race than he did the entire second quarter of 2019, that three-month period where where we measure campaign fundraising by. He went from being the buzzed-about candidate to being somebody who's hanging out around two or three percent in the polls, really has struggled to to distinguish himself in the debate. Uh, and it seems like he did kind of find this, this, this calling talking about the El Paso shoot. But his argument is not, and therefore I will stay in Texas, it is, and therefore I will continue this presidential campaign.
1: That's right. I, I, It's a little hard to fathom his thinking here with respect to that particular logic. But the big fundraising at the beginning of his campaign this year was obviously something of a surge from the 2018 race that he ran against Ted Cruz in Texas. And that's why he's a national star, not only because he has a lot of natural appeal, but because he ran a close race against the supposedly unbeatable Ted Cruz in Texas with a lot of money raised outside of Texas as well as in Texas because he became a hero to liberals nationally. And here's the
0: thing I'd say about O'Rourke's presidential campaign. I mean, clearly we have talked a lot about the way that this field has separated itself out into tiers, and there is this this tier of five candidates who have really established themselves more than any other ones. I still think it's a little less than six months to the Iowa caucuses. I still think there is room for a handful of other candidates to elevate themselves to that tier, and I do think that better O'Rourke has the widespread support, has shown the fundraising potential, has shown that he can be an exciting candidate. He could be one of those candidates to make that jump. He has just really struggled the last few months in this race after that really hot start.
3: Right. I mean, listen, Democrats want to beat Trump so very badly. And we've seen O'Rourke have that bump at the very beginning, getting all that money. We've seen Pete Buttigieg have a sort of bump. We've seen a slow and steady rise of Elizabeth Warren. But I think that voter, there's room for voters to, yeah, like to test out every candidate sort of one at a time. Maybe a Cory Booker can can have a bump. Maybe Amy Klobuchar can. I think that's the sort of thing that can still happen for a few of them as voters just cycle through and say, oh, my God, in this electability frenzy, who on earth is the most electable? I don't know.
0: Ron, you mentioned John Hickenlooper. I'm going to shift gears here, and we are going to need to say bye-bye-bye. Hey, To former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. Just before we recorded today's podcast, John Hickenlooper ended his presidential campaign. Uh, He said, in respect to the Senate, (laughs) I have not
1: been in the studio for this yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Trying to be serious.
1: Nothing, nothing, nothing became his campaign like the leaving of it with that musical accompaniment.
0: (laughs) Did there anybody
3: else know this dance at high school is this the
0: main A okay, little I bit. I right. was I was I was aware of it for sure. <laughs> All right, keep going. In terms of the Senate, he says, I've heard from many Coloradans who want me to run for the Senate. They remind me how much is at stake in this country. I intend to give that some serious thought.
1: John Hickenlooper would be considered to be the Democrats' strongest candidate against Cory Gardner, who is the incumbent Republican senator in Colorado. The state has been trending blue for several years now, is looking strong for Democrats in general. And uh, John Hickenlooper is still popular among Democrats there. There are some other Democrats already running for the Senate there, and so he's going to have to deal with that. Uh, That's probably why he'll take a little time before he makes up his mind.
3: But, yeah, he's won a statewide race there twice already as governor. So, I mean, it just shows that he can win.
0: I have three things to say about John John Hickenlooper. Do tell. First of all, I think he is a great example of the type of candidate, when you look at his political background, with when you look at what he's been able to accomplish, that if it was like 1996 or 2000, he would be an incredibly strong candidate for the Democratic nomination. A, a moderate governor, gotten liberal stuff done, in a purpley swing state, right? But mm-hmm. that is just not what Democratic voters want this year. They want somebody who is more of a fighter, who's more out there, you know, and I just don't think the the friendly guy from Colorado really fit into what Democrats were looking for.
2: And part of that is because back in uh, 2016, that's not what Republicans went for, right? right? They went for something radically different, and it seems like the Democrats are trying to now... Not necessarily match that, but they're trying to respond to that.
0: And the other two things, unfortunately for Governor Hickenlooper, I think a lot of the problem he had this campaign came down to a moment that I witnessed before the first debate in Miami where he was trying to get into the debate venue and the security guard stopped him and said, oh, are you a reporter? The credentials line is this way. (laughs) Just like not necessarily his fault, but just such a wide field. It's just so hard to get attention.
2: Well, not
3: only a wide field, but a field in which you have a lot of senators. Now, governors, we, we have often talked about governors, you know, have executive experience. They, in the past, have done well in these races, but senators, especially with high profile judiciary committee hearings, for example, that Mm. sort of thing. Like, we see senators get these national platforms. They have their They have their moments of grilling a Supreme Court nominee, whereas John Hickenlooper hasn't had an opportunity for the whole nation to know him.
0: So uh, I I think I might have actually seen the very last moments of the Hickenlooper campaign when he was in the beer tent at the Iowa State Fair pouring beers for people. Uh, Danielle, you and I were both there for several days. We saw the candidates doing all the things you do at the fair, flipping pork chops, riding rides, meeting voters, giving Mm -hmm. speeches. You're the Iowan. Why does the State Fair matter?
3: You know, I came away asking the exact same question, <laughs> honestly, because you know, was, like, to be honest here, confession, I am a native Iowa, and I had never been to the Iowa State Fair until uh, until this year, so it was wow. it wow. was new for me. That it, is shocking. I grew up hours away from Des Moines, you guys, you know, but uh, but here hours the, hours two yeah. Anyway, okay. Okay. The, as far as far away from Des Moines as you can get and still living in Iowa. Anyway, the point is this. that So the significance is that it is a big, high-profile event that a lot of Iowans go to. It is wholesome. It is happy. It, it makes for a lot of great photo ops, right? If you can get a photo of you with a corn dog at the Iowa State Fair, make, I, I imagine a presidential candidate thinks it makes you look like a normal person. But I came away honestly wondering how useful this is for normal Iowans, quote-unquote, because... You know, Scott, you were there. Any, especially the big candidates are surrounded by this just crush of people. And getting a candidate to actually talk to a real person is a production in and of itself. And sometimes they just plow through the fair, get their corndog and go. Sometimes they do talk to people, but it's not a given. And aside from that, I talked to a few Iowans who told me, you know, it's cool. We don't have to talk to candidates so-and-so because they come through our town All the candidates come through our town all the time. We can see them other times. We don't have to see them in this giant crowd of people in the heat at the state fair.
0: Yeah. But uh, for candidates, I mean, it's certainly one of those uh, moments where there is a ton of press to talk to. Everyone would give a speech and then give a little press conference, and there were like 20 or 30 cameras, regardless of who you were. Danielle and I did a lot of stories from the Iowa State Fair. If you want to hear more of them, you can go to The Real Radio, where we also do our reporting. (laughs) Also true. Little known fact about the podcast. Uh, If you go to NPR.org, you can hear the stories that Danielle and I did from the State Fair. We're going to take a quick break and we are going to talk about that, quote, crazy inverted yield curve. That's, of course, how President Trump phrased it on Twitter. We'll talk about why it's one of several signs the economy could be slowing down.
4: Support for this podcast and the following message come from ButcherBox. ButcherBox works closely with farms and companies committed to raising animals humanely with no added hormones or antibiotics. And ButcherBox has over 20 different cuts of meat to choose from. With grass-fed beef to free-range organic chicken to wild-caught sockeye salmon, ButcherBox ships free right to your door. Get six free burgers in every box until October 15th and a special discount when you sign up on butcherbox.com politics. Support also comes from BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment at your convenience. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com politics to learn more and get 10% off your first month.
3: The U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world, with 2.3 million people behind bars.
0: This week on Throughline, how we got here. The history of mass incarceration in American culture.
3: Through line from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time
0: to understand the present. And we are back and it has been a very eventful week for people like Danielle and for people like me a week where I bug Danielle with a lot of questions. We have several signs that happened in the past week that a recession could maybe possibly be on the horizon. We're going to walk through them, and we're going to talk about how they could affect politics. So, Danielle, let's start with one that got a lot of attention. The way the president framed it was tweeting about the crazy inverted yield curve.
3: All caps.
0: All caps. Yes. But your response, seeing this data come in, was kind of like the Danielle Kurtzleben newsroom equivalent of all caps. <laughs> if
3: guys, <laughs> guys,
0: what is this, and why does it matter?
3: Okay, the yield curve, the reason this matters is that the yield curve is one of those rare and pretty good predictors of a recession. Like when the yield curve inverts and I'm going to get to what that is in a second, there tends to be about somewhere in the realm of 18 months until a recession happens. A recession is two quarters or more of negative economic growth. That's the technical definition.
0: Cool. Um just assume that one is sitting here in a green shirt and the microphone across from you and Mm -hmm. still is confused by what the yield curve is
3: okay basically it's this it is a chart that shows you how much return you get or yield on various forms of government debt so you can loan money to the government you can buy bonds treasury bonds for certain amounts of time anywhere from three months to 30 years short term to long term this is a chart that shows how much return you get on it now in a normal economy If I am giving money to the government for 10 years, I expect a high return. Why? Because there's a lot of risk in me handing money over to the government for that long. I'm going to demand a lot more back, right? Well, what happened this week is that the return on the long-term bonds, the return on that long-term investment, dipped below the return on a short-term investment. That is really weird. Normally, it should be riskier to loan your money for a longer term.
0: And oversimplified, does that just mean a lot of people are worried about what happens around the corner and are deciding to be safe and park their money in long-term bonds?
3: What it means is that people believe that in the future inflation is going to be low and the Fed is going to lower interest rates. Well, what creates low inflation and causes the Fed to lower interest rates? recessions do. It means investors expect a recession and it means they see risk in the short term.
1: Daniel, is it fair to say that this indicates that businesses are less than confident about what's going to be going on in the economy in the next couple of years?
3: I think it's fair to say that it just means all sorts of uncertainty. I mean, the basic thing is that when Trump says this is a crazy inverted yield curve, crazy isn't far off. This does not happen often, but it reliably happens just before a recession.
0: And Aisha what was interesting to me is there were a couple other signs of a possible slowdown of the economy both here and around the world and what was interesting is that there were a lot of analysts and and by and large I feel like the business world has has not had a problem at all with the Trump administration they they're all about uh, regulations being cut they're all about the tax cuts that gave them a ton of of extra revenue but there were a lot of people saying yeah, this continued trade war, the continued unpredictability of it is really cutting into the economy.
2: And yeah, that's the the thing is that they, they've had this cloud hanging over the global economy where you've had the U.S. and China kind of battling it out and what you saw this week is the U.S. and the White House kind of pulled back a bit and so there were supposed to be these tariffs that were going to go into effect on September 1st and what the trade rep- U.S. trade representative said is that they all will not go into effect some of them will but the ones that really could have affected consumers like laptops and you know back to school supplies things like that they are not going into effect so it's
1: what important happened, to note, I think, that that indicates what the White House really thinks about who pays for tariffs. Right. Because if consumers are going to be affected by the tariffs and that's going to keep them from buying as many things, that means they know perfectly well the prices are going to be affected. But the official line from the White House has been China's going to pay for it all. But what happened recently to
0: change minds? Because the president has been um, posturing and going back and forth with China and several other countries on tariffs for a long time now. These policies have been in in place for a long time. What changed in the last few weeks to suddenly uh, make make all these smart, you know, all knowing people more pessimistic about the economy?
3: I mean, part of it is that at the start of August, Trump did announce another round of tariffs. Aside from that, this week, we got some worrying news from a couple of other countries. Germany, for example, tipped into very minorly negative growth, but negative growth. All of this is interconnected, right? Because Chinese consumers buy German autos, for example. And we have some tariffs on Europe. They get much less... uh, than the Chinese ones. But yes, those play into this. And and the world is globalized, right? So investors look at these major economies overseas, see the trouble there, and they worry about the U.S. economy.
1: And let us remember, this is a 10-year-old expansion. It began all the way back in 2009. And we have been climbing almost without break since then. That is unusual. It's record setting. So there is a business cycle still. Gravity has not been repealed. At some point or another, something is coming.
0: And, Ron, I think most listeners would, would obviously understand that if the economy goes south, that that is harmful to President Trump's re-election chances. But can you just explain how important recession versus economic growth is, regardless of who the candidates are, regardless of what year the election's in?
1: The strongest argument for the re-election of President Trump is the strength of his economy, which is his economy now after two and a half years in office. Wherever it was when he came in, it's strong now and it's his. The strength of his reelection argument is the strength of the economy. So if the economy weakens, even some, the argument weakens, at least some.
3: And one thing I want to add to this, and I've been beating this drum forever, but it's true, is that, you know, if we do have a recession and if it is coming in, you know, the next year or two, we have so little room as of right now to deal with it. What do you mean by that? Because the Fed, so interest rates are how the Fed speeds up the economy. They push interest rates down, that is supposed to speed up the economy, interest rates are already quite low. They're half as high as they were before the last recession, so they have less room to push that accelerator down. Aside from that, we just spent a bunch of money on a bunch of tax cuts. We're spending a bunch of money on all sorts of other stuff. My point is we don't have a lot of fiscal room. So if if a recession hits, think of that big stimulus that was passed at the start of the Great Recession. Do we have room to do a large stimulus like that if there is even political will for that? And I'm not even saying there is. If we wanted to do that, I don't know if we could.
0: Though Aisha, Danielle said that the general guideline, if you look at the past, is that it takes about 18 months for this to kick in. Uh, that would be, I believe, just after November 2020.
2: And so with these recessions, they're very hard to predict, right? Eventually it will happen, but we don't know when. I'm sure what the White House is hoping is that if there is going to be a a dip in the economy, that it will happen after the election and not before. And so that's the the wild card right now. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break, come back, and end the show with Can't Let It Go.
4: Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, developing solutions to support strong families and communities to help ensure a brighter future for America's children. More information is available at AECF.org.
3: Think of NPR's Life Kit as that friend who always has great advice on everything from how to invest to how to get a great workout. We bring you tools to help you get it together. So listen and subscribe to NPR's Life Kit, all guides to get all of our episodes all in one place. Everybody ready? <clears throat> you know
0: it. <laughs> Three, two, one. And we are back, and it is time to end the show like we do every week with Can't Let It Go, the part of the show where we talk about the things we cannot stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Ayesha, you are up first.
2: Yes, so what I cannot let go of this week, uh, I talked a bit about this in one of the live shows in Philly. I think, I don't like birds, right? And yet you bravely came to the
0: Sesame Street concert <laughs> wait, with a very wait. big bird. It was
2: a very big bird, but I, I allowed it. I allowed it. Like, but <laughs> You're afraid of birds? I'm afraid of birds, okay. especially big okay. birds. Okay. And so <laughs> in this case, I also, this is also like a summertime, you know, thing too. So apparently in Ocean City, New Jersey, mm-hmm. everyone knows where, where the big boardwalk and all that stuff, uh, they've had a problem with these seagulls who are, like, evil. Or, I, that was my, that's my reference. They're Mortal evil. judgment, okay. Yes. And so <laughs> they were saying it was so bad, and this this is a New York Times story. They said that they quoted someone saying, I've seen them take an entire pizza. This guy had a box. He took one slice out. The bird came down, hit the slice, then hit the box, and then hundreds of birds just swarmed. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> that's impressive.
2: They're aggressive. And so what does what does the city decide to do to deal with this? They bring more birds. So they have hired these raptors.
0: <laughs> these like mercenary birds for hire. <laughs> yeah,
2: like so the the headline is like <laughs> flying assassins are called into combat against aggress- aggressive gulls. So they use falcons and they had an owl and like It's it's really. (laughs) Are they like
0: like fighting (laughs) in the air above the boardwalk? (laughs) It's bird on bird. These birds,
2: they could eat the gulls, but they don't. (laughs) They're just trained to scare them. This costs Mm. like twenty one hundred dollars a day. My question is, what happens when these raptors decide? Exactly. You know what? You're using us. I think we have bigger prey we want to attack. Well, Maybe the- there's some little... <laughs> well, now, now, now
3: you have, like, food chain problems. Because yeah. then, like, well, what did you do to deal with the raptors taking over? Ex- well, we brought, well, we brought in mountain lions. <laughs> exactly. What did you do to take care of
2: the mountain and- lions? T-Rexes? Exactly. Like, so no. it's like they, they're going to... The raptors are going to realize what they're doing, and then they're going to start attacking the people, and then what can you do then? What can you do then?
1: Well, I like Nothing. the marketing
2: possibility.
0: Hide in the I kitchen. I like to mark what you can do then, based on other raptors. Ron?
1: <laughs> this is something I literally cannot let go. It's actually been going on for about a month now. Jessica Taylor, our colleague, uh, tweeted from a Trump rally in North Carolina that the president had just used an expression twice that evangelicals find highly objectionable. This involves the word God, the name God, and it also involves the word damn. And if you put those together in a particular way, it is highly offensive to serious evangelicals, theological evangelicals, not just people who fit in that category, maybe demographically, mm-hmm. but people who really take their Bible seriously. Uh, we're talking about all the way back to the Ten Commandments and certainly...
2: Taking the Lord's name in vain. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's it's blasphemous to to urge God to do this. I did it twice in this mm-hmm. speech and there were people objecting to it. And now, a month later, people are still talking about not only the fact that he said this, but also the fact that Jessica Taylor tweeted it. And a lot of people didn't understand at the time why something like that might be offensive when so many other things the president has said and perhaps done
0: Right, because admittedly,
1: he has broken other Ten Commandments, and he has incredibly strong strength
0: from white evangelical conservatives.
1: It, It is. It's a little hard, I think, for people who don't share this particular uh, background in terms of their own personal families and and religion, to understand why that particular phrase is so meaningful. I remember having it being uh, very carefully explained to me by my minister in my confirmation training uh that minister also happened to be my father so i was taking it rather (laughs) seriously
2: i you know i grew up in a very religious household uh, still very religious myself i I think that the issue is this idea of you should reverence the name of the lord like we didn't really go around saying even you know how some people go jesus christ like we didn't do that like you just don't you just don't do it like that's just you know and well we didn't curse at all like my mother never curses so, you know, like, it was just like a thing. Like, we didn't, we felt like that. They felt like that's sinful. You don't curse at all. Yeah.
0: What about you, Danielle?
3: So what I can't, like, go over a couple of little moments from Pete Buttigieg's visit, Buttigieg's visit to the <laughs> Iowa State Fair. It's a hard <laughs> word. Yeah. Not um, as
0: hard as O'Rourke. Uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> let's, not ta-
3: let's not go there right now The possessive of Buttigieg <laughs> is difficult All right, so Pete Buttigieg uh, After his little his speech at the fair Then people get to ask questions And someone raised their hand, a teenager And said, hey, I'm about to go off to college Do you have any advice for teenagers about to go to college? And here was, like, his answer Just, I, I didn't even know what to think Here's what he said
1: one thing you ought to know is that dish soap and hand soap are pretty much the same thing. So in your dorm room, this is very useful. It took me a while to figure that out.
3: What? <laughs> I don't think that's true. I, like, I don't either. First of all, okay, I, have, like, first of all, I I appreciate it because it's reminiscent of all the low-key gross stuff that goes along with college. Like people showing up to class in their PJs and like my roommate sniffing her clothes before she put them on in the morning. I suppose I probably did that at some point too. But aside from that, like... Like, don't you have questions? Like, does that mean he was using dish soap as hand soap? Was he bathing with dish soap? Or does that mean he was using hand soap to wash his dishes? And, like, I want more follow-ups, people. Yeah, like, that, This uh, is important. Well, he's
1: certainly yeah. not using bar soap. He's he's talking about interchanging the, the, the bottle soap, You can know, of which is your hands. I wash my hands wash with a dish. dish soap all the
0: time. I do that, yeah. but I, not I, your I, body. I, I think that's <laughs> objectionable.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's don't objectionable.
2: Because it's cheaper? I, well, it's right there. If you're in the kitchen, you just use. Well, you can the wash dish, your hands. Yeah, you wash so. your hands. Yes, most definitely. But not your body. There That's are components the in dishwashers <laughs> that said are designed
1: to clean grease off of porcelain.
2: What I'm saying is he didn't explain well. And all seagulls.
1: Hmm. Let's talk about it. Hmm.
2: <laughs> all same stained seagulls too.
0: And for my can't let it go, I will just briefly add to this. We've talked about the fair a little bit today i will just quickly i compiled a list of all the things i ate at the fair (laughs) and i thought i was being reasonable but when i list them all together granted i was there for several days
3: yes granted i ate some salads
0: at other points (laughs) Mm -hmm, but i'm just gonna mm -hmm. tick off everything i ate at the fair ready do it pork chop on a stick Mm. cheese curds fried mac and cheese didn't love those burnt tips ice cream Bacon wrapped corn dogs, and it really escalates at the end. Maple glazed pork belly on a stick, excellent. Deep fried Oreos, excellent. And a corn dog themed beer that was specifically Ugh. brewed for the state fair. Ugh.
3: As the Iowan in this podcast, I'm so proud.
0: You know, I feel like I, I left it out all on the tip. <laughs> I
3: yeah. left
1: it at the fair. <laughs> Thank you, Tatanka. All right.
0: That is clearly a wrap for today. We will be back as soon as there is political news you need to know about. Until then, a reminder, we are hitting the road. A couple live shows coming up. One in Boulder, Colorado on September 20th. Another in Washington, D.C. on November 8th. You can grab a ticket by heading to nprpresents.org. I'm Scott Tetra, I cover politics.
3: I'm Danielle
2: Kurtzleben, I also cover politics. I'm Aisha Roscoe, I cover the White House. And
0: I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.